As Protestant Christians from the evangelical branch of Protestantism, as people who believe that the Bible is God's word, it's his special revelation to us, it is God's self-revelation to us. As people who believe in the infallibility of the word of God, that it will never misguide us and it will never lead us astray in any way. As people who hold such a high view of God's word, we do a to God's revelation to us and how I believe we respond to Jesus' mother, Mary. In fact, in Protestant churches, it is more of a reaction to how Catholicism has venerated Mary that most Bible-believing Christians tend to downplay Mary as if she's almost of no account in the biblical witness. Or at best, we recognize her during the run-up to Christmas, during the Advent season on church calendars, and that's sort of it. My New Testament professor for Greek exegesis in my years when I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the mid-1980s, Dr. Scott McKnight says most evangelicals keep Mary wrapped up in bubble wrap for most of the year with all of their other Christmas decorations. Then when early December rolls around, we take her out and we put her on display in our creches and our nativity scenes with, with Joseph and baby Jesus and the animals and the stable and the manger and the, the wise men and the shepherds. Then after Christmas, he says, back into the bubble wrap, she goes. Dr. McKnight says, overall, our treatment of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a disservice to the witness of the gospel. Because Mary was a woman of courageous faith. And to know her is to be challenged uh, to be courageous in our faith ourselves. See, God calls all of us to courageous faith. In fact, our world desperately needs followers right now who will exercise courageous faith, who will make sacrifices on behalf of Christ, who will be faithful witnesses, who will introduce others to the gift of Christmas. We need courageous faith, just like the world in the first century needed people of faith to step forward boldly with conviction to reveal the gift of Christmas, Jesus. And Mary was such a person. And as we learn today, people with courageous faith will accept God's will for their lives. Now, we're all familiar with the Christmas account that Mary was young, she was poor, she was a Jewish woman from a tiny little village called Nazareth in the outermost region of Galilee. And the gospel writer Luke informs us, as we just read here this morning, that the archangel, one of the archangels, this one named Gabriel, appeared to the Virgin Mary. Was it in a dream? We don't know. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Was it when she was out and about somewhere? Was she in her home? It doesn't tell us where she was, but it tells us that he spoke to her and told her that she was going to conceive a child supernaturally. And it wasn't going to be any old child either. It was going to be the son of the Most High. It was going to be in the line of the Davidic king of Israel. It was going to be be the long-awaited Messiah. And it all was going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that, that, that Mary would have known of in the creation accounts in Genesis who hovered over 
the waters in creation. Well, this spirit was going to hover over Mary and create this miracle child within her womb. And Mary was overwhelmed by all of this. But Gabriel explained everything to her. And literally, in, in, in a short version, Mary said, may it be. Our translation up there just said, well, may your word to me be full, fulfilled. But she's saying literally, may it be. And for many of us here, uh, where Mary's, this is where Mary's involvement ends to us. Okay, she agreed to carry out God's plan, and that's it. And what we miss in our quick dismissal of Mary's actions is how much faith it took for her to really agree with God's plan for her life, what God was going to do. It took courageous faith for Mary to accept God's will for her life. Remember, she was betrothed to Joseph before, and this may it be, ever occurred. Many months before, she'd already been you know, betrothed to Joseph, before the finalization of her marriage. Her may it be was way ahead of her I do to Joseph. Also, her auto-wedlock pregnancy meant that many would question the very legitimacy of her marriage to Joseph. And for us, looking back 2,000 years, we can easily take for granted Mary's may it be. Let me caution you not to do that. Instead, let me encourage you to put yourself in Mary's place for just a moment. You know, try walking in her sandals for a while and see if you don't all of a sudden view this completely different. See, imagine what it would have been like to tell this bizarre, you know, immaculate conception out of wedlock pregnancy story to your family. Imagine having to go to your parents and tell them that teenager basically imagine going to your betrothed husband joseph and tell him that account imagine eventually going to your extended family and your friends and ultimately to the community because nazareth many experts say was very tiny basically half the size of poplar so you got 300 people and everybody knows everything in a small town we know all kinds of things about one another Well, people would have obviously known that she was pregnant and she was pregnant out of wedlock. And just imagine how her faith, how her integrity, and her virtue would be called into question. To understand Mary's faith, you have to understand what she believed and what time she was living in. See, she exercised her faith in a culture that was noted for following the law. The first five books of the Old Testament contain all the ceremonies, all the judicial laws, all the moral laws of Israel. Sometimes they're referred to as the Pentateuch. Back then, they would have really been referred to a lot as Torah, which means instruction. It was the law. And there were 613 commandments within the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that were to be followed. And here she is, a young woman. And in our culture, she would have been a teenager. Most estimate her age would have been between 14 and 13. And she's betrothed to Joseph. In other words, she's spoken for many months before the wedding ceremony is even to take place. And betrothal was a serious engagement. They were already classified as husband and wife, just without the consummation of the relationship. And Joseph, her betrothed husband, knew that he was not the responsible party for her pregnancy. Mary, in that culture, would have immediately been labeled 
as an adulteress because she made no claim that she had been forcibly uh, violated, that, that, that she was taken advantage of. And she made no claims like that whatsoever. And keep in mind, according to the Pentateuch, according to the law, because Joseph wasn't the party that was responsible for her pregnancy, and Mary and him were already legally husband and wife, because that's what betrothal was, any sexual behavior on Mary's part outside of marriage to Joseph would be classified as adultery. Anything before the wedding ceremony itself took place, their husband and wife. So in our culture, in an engagement period like that, it would be just called fornication. But in that culture, it was considered adultery, you know, and she was already classified as someone married to Joseph. So in such cases, the law called for death by stoning for adultery. This is the world that Mary lived in. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin, pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge this evil from among you. Mary did not cry out or scream out or plead or anything. So the law says... She should end up dead under a six-foot pile of rock. So do you understand when Mary said, I am your servant? May it be. What she was signing herself up for. At this point, she had no idea how Joseph would respond. She literally could have ended up dead under a pile of stones thrown at her. Now, life isn't always straightforward in cases of adultery. It wasn't back then. It isn't today. So how would the Israelites justly administer this law in such cases? How do you know if the woman was really guilty of adultery, that she hadn't been raped, or that her husband hadn't drummed up charges against her? Maybe he found something he didn't like and didn't want to be married to her, and so you had a perfect out. Just accuse her of adultery. She gets stoned to death. He can go on and marry someone else. He can be betrothed to someone else. How do you know that there wasn't false charges drummed up against a woman in a situation like this? And what if she denies, denies any wrongdoing? How can you determine guilt in disputable cases? Well, again, the law addresses this. Now, let me give you a warning before I read from the book of Numbers, before I read from the law, from the Torah, let me say that this is going to be hard for me to read because it's not very palatable what's said here. And it's going to be hard for you to listen to this. But listen to Numbers chapter 5, and I'm going to read verse 11 through 31. And the title is The Test for an Unfaithful Wife. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest, He must also take an offering of a a tenth of an ephah, 
of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. Do you see some parallels here? When God is saying to you, you're going to bear this child that, that is immaculately conceived, and she says, may it be. You know, basically, she's saying the same thing, Mary, is amen, so be it. Well, the priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, and has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This then is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife, the priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this, this entire law to her. The law has to be followed is what it's saying. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. This was the law of the land. And Mary knew it full well. And we are told in the first century from rabbinic sources that this drinking bitter waters sometimes became a public display of justice or even outright family revenge, not only for the offended uh, party, the husband in this case, but the entire family that had also been shamed and maligned by this adultery. 
Dr. Scott McKnight in his book, The Real Mary, writes that from later rabbinic sources we learn sota, which is the Hebrew word for suspected adulteress, was brought into a court in Jerusalem to see if a confession could be extracted. And if the sota maintained her innocence, like Mary would have, the suspected adulteress would be taken to a conspicuous location for public humiliation. There she would be required to drink the bitter water. Her clothes would be torn, exposing some of her torso's nakedness. Her hair would be let down like that of a prostitute. And all of her jewelry would be taken off. And passerbys, especially women, would be encouraged to stare at the publicly shamed woman in order to make an object lesson out of her. This is the world Mary lived in. So by saying, may it be, Lord, I'm your servant, may it be, she was potentially putting all of this into play. Now, we know the story. We know that Joseph was a righteous man, and he wasn't going to put Mary through the bitter waters procedure. But when Mary said, may it be, she didn't know for sure that her law-abiding husband would insist that the letter of the law be followed. She didn't know that. She didn't have any guarantees. See, Mary, as a follower of God's word, as a follower of the Torah, also knew as a result of this that her son that she was going to bear would be shamed, would be ridiculed, would be mocked, would be taunted and ostracized as an illegitimate child. In fact, we read in the Gospels that there were times when he was called the son of Mary. People were just reminding him and reminding his mother that he was this illegitimate child. And in that culture, that was a, a profanity, basically, a vulgar term. We have a term in our culture, I can't say it for you, son of a But that's the same thing that Jesus was being called when he was called the son of Mary. And Mary understood that. She knew. In Hebrew, he was a mamzer. A mamzer. He was an illegitimate child. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, we read, No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation not only was that child illegitimate child shamed and ostracized but for 10 generations the descendants would also there was such a deterrent in that culture that you do not you know have sexual activity outside of marriage you do not bear children illegitimately that they made it so painful that nobody in their right mind would ever do such a thing And Mary understood, she knew that her son would be shamed by many in Israel, especially at their festivals and their religious assemblies. And she also knew that even if Joseph didn't insist on the bitter water's observance, at a minimum, he would be legally obligated to divorce her. Mary knew as well, the result of her illegitimate child, that any financial settlement of the divorce, since they were poor, was basically going to amount to nothing. No one. No one in their right mind, no sane person would have possibly accepted the fate that was Mary's against all the odds as a woman in a patriarchal society like that 
would have if not for her faith in God. How could Mary consent to such a plan? Because she knew God. She knew God abounded in loving kindness. She knew that God was a merciful God. And Mary also understood from the scriptures that God had cared for many women in precarious situations. Women like Hagar or Tamar or Rahab or Ruth, even Hannah and Bathsheba. And Mary's faith against all odds, long odds like this, she faced, uh, you know, Mary's faith in God against all the long odds she faced caused her to utter these courageous words of faith. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary consented by faith to God's plan. She consented to participate in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. She counted the cost uh, because she lived in a Torah world. She, in that sense, denied herself, took up her cross, and followed Jesus way before Jesus ever went to the cross. In fact, before Jesus was even born. And as a result, Mary's life was turned upside down. Many refused to believe her story, while others would never think very much of her ever again or her son. Well, the Protestant church reformer Martin Luther writes, how many came in contact with her, talked and ate and drank with her, who perhaps despised her, and counted her but a common, poor, and simple village maiden. And who, had they known, would have fled from her in terror. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, reveals to us why we need to respect the courageous faith of Mary. And why we need to consider having that same courageous faith ourselves. Because we live in a very troubled world, too, where there's all kinds of ridicule and rejection. And if you align yourself with Christ, you can even be persecuted in this world today. Here's what it says. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Do you understand a little bit about the humble state of his servant as we've looked at these scriptures in the law. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. That promise is for us today. For us today as well. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary accepted God's will for her life, even at great risk to herself. And we are the beneficiaries of her courageous faith. And just ask yourself, if we not only would recognize that in Mary, but also follow that same courageous faith of hers in this culture, how many other people could be beneficiaries of our courageous faith? Let's pray.
God, our Father, today as we've looked at Mary's life again and from a little bit different perspective than the usual uh, Christmas story, uh, Lord, it's all part of your story. In fact, God, it helps explain to us the humble state of your servant, Mary. Lord, forgive us as evangelical Christians, as Protestant Christians, for our easily, uh, easily dismissing Mary as just the mother of Jesus and not recognizing the faith that she had to express and live out to be the mother of Jesus and to uh, consent, God, to your will for her life. And Lord, I believe it's the same faith that you're calling on us to live in a world that's very hostile to you. And so, God, I pray that, that your gospel could continue to be advanced because more and more of your children will exercise the courageous faith necessary uh, in a culture like ours. And I pray this to Jesus in, in Jesus' name. Amen.